0: And we welcome to the program once again John McWhorter, professor of linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley, author of a number of books uh, that uh, got a lot of attention over recent years, Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language and Music, and Why We Should Like Care is the title of the newest one. I love the like place there in the <laughs> subtitle. And that uh, illustrates and is representative of what you're talking about in this book, mm-hmm. the way in which spoken speech, talk, Mm -hmm. Uh, rather than oratory or uh, formal writing, Mm -hmm. has taken a very different, and to you a somewhat distressing turn.
1: Well, it's at the point where... There has been a certain trend to distrust authority, which I think has been particularly popular since the late 60s. And as a result of that, the distance between the oral and the formal in language has narrowed a great deal over the past 35 years. And so it's at the point where when we make a speech, we're encouraged to come as we are rather than to switch into a different, more constrained variety of English. Formal writing and journalistic writing is not as decorative as it used to be, and even our relationship to poetry has changed, because the idea that poetry should rhyme and have meter now occupies a much smaller space in our society than it used to, out of a sense that we are to do our own thing and channel a more spontaneous kind of muse.
0: Yes, poetry is interesting chat with some metaphors thrown in, and there is a certain proper rhythm but there isn't a meter there isn't rhyme right and in fact i just had someone say to me earlier today uh, who was talking about the poetry of sylvia plath and her uh, husband until the time of her death Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, they uh, said that that he particularly sort of um, took some of his narrative uh, line and some of his basic thoughts Wrote them down and then reworked them into uh, Hmm. poetic lines, broke them up into
1: poetic lines, a poetic scan. Right. Though you could have just as well read them a straight prose. Sure, yeah. Um, And I think part of the reason for that, and of course it's not that meterless, rhymeless poetry had not been being written before, but even then there was often more constraint in the construction, in terms of vocabulary, in terms of basic rhythm, then is often considered what poetry is about today. And that was because poetry was a matter of working within constraints and extracting art from that. It's the constraint that we're throwing off these days.
0: I love the way in which you begin the book, because you turn to, you say you start writing it on uh, September 10th, 10th, which I literally did, yeah. the day before. September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. And then that leads you to the speeches commemorating great warlike disasters. Mm -hmm. And you go to Gettysburg.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And what's so fascinating is we've all heard that Edward Everett, Edward Everett. Uh, rattled on for two hours, and then Lincoln got up and did his few-minute speech, and that's the one we (laughs) remember. But you make quite clear that Everett was, in fact, a master and
1: did a very interesting performance. Yeah, the content of what he said was not all that interesting, really, but he used a very carefully wrought, elevated language to give a kind of a historical pageant, and he did it where what was featured was the level of his oratory. He was known as a speaker. He had done various rather sterling things in life, none of them for very long, none of them all that well. He would be a footnote in history today if it weren't for the fact that he had given that speech before the Gettysburg Address. He was a rock star as an orator. This was a time when people would stand on a drizzly day and thrill to someone speaking in a way far removed from the way we talk. Emerson must have been very good in that connection as well, don't you think? Actually, he was very busy on the lecture circuit. Oh. As a matter of fact, certainly, not to mention that an Emerson could not have gotten away with the come-as-you-are speech mode that we use. We can be quite sure that if we had recordings of an, Emmer- of an Emerson public lecture, that it would be in a language that we, many of us, would find very stilted. But the question is, why? Why does it give offense today when very ordinary people thronged to hear people like this at the time?
0: But even if you look to the modern uh, time and go back a few years, you do, in fact, find um, considerably more elevation in public speech particularly on significant and uh, perhaps even troubling occasions than we possibly uh, manage than, than our public figures possibly uh, strive to achieve now right as to illustrate all of that two things uh, for comparison FDR on uh, the uh, on uh, December uh what December eighth,
1: eighth, nineteen forty. December
0: eighth, nineteen forty-one. Yeah. The day of infamy speech. Some excerpts from it, and then George W. Bush uh, uh, from the Oval Office on the night of nine eleven. one right. Here is R- Roosevelt. After we hear him, we'll chat for a bit about it, and then we'll compare the Bush. Okay.
3: Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might We'll win through to absolute victory.
4: Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life the pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world, and no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, Spoken through the ages in Psalm 23 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil For you are with me This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace America has stood down any enemies before and we will do so this time None of us will ever forget this day yet. We go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night, and God bless America.
0: Well, certainly uh, President Bush speaking directly after the 9-11 assault is doing it with solemnity, and uh, that uh, his efforts can't be sloughed aside as inadequate, can it?
1: No, he's certainly not um, speaking the way he would talk but I think that there's a sharp qualitative difference between the way FDR made his statement and the way Bush did, or just in the texts. The Bush text is graceful in its way, it's more mundane. There's almost a conscious attempt not to sound too highfalutin. Mm-hmm. You have your moms. You have moms your, and
0: dads. You can't moms imagine and dads. Roosevelt, no. Of moms and nor dads. would
1: a Roosevelt speechwriter have done planes flying into buildings. You yeah. know, a little graceless. It's designed to sound down to earth while being solemn and somewhat commemorative. It's and as that's as if the, the speech spirit of our time.
0: Written was submitted to Bill Zinsser for vetting. Who's Bill Zinser? He's the guy who uh, was a newspaper man, wound up in the last part of his career at Yale. He did a book which uh, is quite popular with uh, newspaper editors and magazine editors, hmm. uh, and it's the same old message, pare it down, get rid of all the unnecessary words. Right, Orwell no would have, uh, There you
1: represents go. ...represents the that's, same, doesn't it? That's right. And, of course, the fact is that you can have very stripped-down very vernacular speech and convey wonderful truths. You can do it with elegant language. You can lie with elegant language. You can lie with very stripped down language. And so all of these parameters kind of work against one another. But there's definitely something to be said for the precision of vocabulary and the long line of argument that you can sustain in written language and the spoken version of it.
0: While we're talking about oratory and just what oratory can do to stir you and also to lead a nation, or some collectivity, short of a nation, through a difficult time. I'm going to ask the folks in the booth to go quickly to uh, number six on the list, Churchill, in the finest hour speech. And that should be coming up almost instantly. One hopes. Perhaps not.
5: What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the likes of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour.
0: Well there's the there's the absolute master, I suppose, one would have to say.
1: Yeah,
5: and
0: it's for modern political
1: rhetorical speech. And not an accident that he is English, because actually, even today, even though there's a certain extent to which in Great Britain the sense of formality in language is going the way ours is, I think partly because of our influence, Mm -hmm. there is still a certain love of language among them. There's a show on BBC Radio called Just a Minute, where people challenge one another, or contestants are challenged to orate on a given subject for 60 seconds. You know, what happened when I turned 35? And whether you're good at it or bad at it, the fact of the matter is that that will be highly unlikely here even on NPR. We don't thrill to English, we don't find it cute to the extent that Brits do.
0: Now, here is the basic question. Uh, I pose it just as we pause for some commercials. I look forward to your answer in about three minutes. Uh, And it's um, the quizzical response. So what? So if we don't do rhetoric the way we used to, if we're not as oratund and oratorical Mm -hmm. as we used to be, what difference does it make? Uh, We still get the business of the world done. We still Mm -hmm. get the business of business done. We still maintain family life. Or do we? Uh, What difference does how we speak and how we write and how we publicly declaim uh, make for anything that really matters across the long range of human uh, involvement, human concern, why and human we history like to itself. Care? Why should we care? And you'll explain why right after we pause for these words. And we return to John McWhorter, author of, and it's the book that we're drawing from tonight, Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language and Music. And that's published by. Who is it published by?
1: Oh, Gotham Books. Which is a an imprint
0: of Penguin, Penguin. is it? That's not? right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so my basic and obvious question was, so what if we don't talk the way Churchill or Roosevelt, if our public figures, don't talk the way mm-hmm. Churchill and Roosevelt did, mm-hmm. and if you and I don't talk as well as uh, Senator, as formally as maybe... Senator Fulbright did. Mm -hmm. Is that a
1: fair choice? Back in the day, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: what difference does it make?
1: Well, the difference is that I think, and of course, there's some things that are good about the democratization of language, but I think that the difference in this case is that we don't necessarily need to be orotund. However, to the extent that we're in a society where it would be considered vaguely improper Hmm to make a rhetorically precise and persuasively oriented speech, a piece of oration. I think that our political culture suffers, not that it was ever perfect, but for example, right now, Imagine if the administration crafted a really brilliant speech explaining their position on Iraq and what's gone on so far and what hasn't to try to address the skeptics who are around us, who I think have very justifiable questions at this point, in order to try to erase some of the feeling out there that the people in the administration are just scoundrels. That's not happening not because the Bush administration (coughs) is intransigent, it's because we live in a time when a speech like that would be as anachronistic as a horse and carriage.
0: Well, but, you know, that, that sets me to wondering, who is, if not speaking, then writing in terms that really give a proper rationale for our involvement in Iraq and our the continuing significance of it? And uh, you're right, you, we don't get much of that from major figures in government, but I think, for example, of a few writers. I think of the guys as the, week,
1: the weekly standard. Definitely them, yeah. And I
0: think particularly of Victor Davis Hanson.
1: Yeah, he's excellent at this sort Isn't of thing. He, and small circulation journals. In he's general. in National Review more than any place Yeah, else. whereas my favorite is The New Republic, and they have written, they have major skepticism about various things going on, but they were mostly mm-hmm. in favor of going into Iraq, and they made you know wonderful cases for these things, but let's face it, those are minority sources. And Victor Davis Hanson is quite good, but most of what he writes will only be read by a small circle. This sort of thing ought to be put in a different but elegant kind of language, suasive kind of language, on TV. Um, these things should be in the newspaper. Uh, an address by the president that was really a piece of work that could be taken home really would help our political culture right now. It's not going to happen and i think that's because of the kind of america that we live in clinton yes he was a good speaker he was fun to listen to but where's his take-home speech where's the speech he made that people are 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 spontaneously going to imagine being reprinted in collections of rhetoric i can't think of one the one thing we will remember is his looking with utter sincerity into the cameras (laughs) waving his finger and saying that woman." that's right and that's the most memorable thing he said and it depends on what is is and and things like that so i think we have a problem with it in that way another problem with the lack of language love that i detect is that i think it has something to do with marginalizing poetry um in our consciousness it's not that poetry was ever a majority taste but i'm sure you can remember there was a time when you had to fake it more you were given it in class the typical middle class person had untermeyer on their shelf that's no longer true if somebody my age has norton anthology on their shelf it's because we had it in college we didn't go out and buy it at borders language poetry is english or language of a heightened crafted kind. To the extent that poetry becomes a kind of heightened form of just talking, I think there are fewer people who are likely to become poetry fans, because poetry that is composed within constraint impresses more easily, because beauty is being extracted from structure. I'm about to read you a passage from one of my
0: favorite writers, but most of my friends, when I commend this fellow, say, well, yes, it's rather florid, and he certainly was, a, was smart and brilliant and could coin a phrase, but, my God, there's so much rhetoric there, it's so heavy, you kind of lose track of it all. Hmm. Uh, I have in mind no one less than Edward Gibbon. Oh, here we go. On okay. the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Lovely writing. One uh, mid-sized paragraph. Uh, this is about the Emperor Constantine and his choice of Christianity. The grateful applause of the clergy has consecrated the memory of a prince Who indulged their passions and promoted their interest. Constantine gave them security, wealth, honors, and revenge, and the support of the orthodox faith was considered as the most sacred and important duty of the civil magistrate. The Edict of Milan, the great charter of toleration, had confirmed to each individual of the Roman world the privilege of choosing and professing his own religion. But this inestimable privilege was soon violated, With the knowledge of truth, the Emperor imbibed the maxims of persecution, and the sects which dissented from the Catholic Church were afflicted and oppressed by the triumph of Christianity. Constantine easily believed that the heretics who presumed to dispute his opinions or to oppose his commands were guilty of the most absurd and criminal obstinacy, and that a seasonable application of moderate severities might save those unhappy men from the danger of an everlasting condemnation.
1: Oh, isn't that lovely? See, What's lovely about it? What's lovely about that is that clearly, every word was very carefully chosen, every sentence's rhythm was thought out beforehand and burnished, the idea being to take language and render it into something that is maximally pleasing to the eye or the ear if it's read. This is not the way we talk. This is decorating the language. And it's the impulse that Gibbon had that nowadays is much rarer. What's interesting is that that is a responsible nonfiction source. And yet imagine the way many people who are as learned as him write today in the twisted kind of prose that is now considered ordinary for academics, particularly in the literary world and the humanistic world. The difference between then and now is not that the Judith Butlers are trying to seem special by writing that way. That's a cheap and an easy shot. It's that people like that are writing in a way that happens to be easy for them to understand within their little fraternity. However, they don't care how that writing looks to the outside world because they don't have a sense that language is kind of like deodorant. It's something that's a bad analogy. But dressing up language in public is kind of like using deodorant or putting on a fedora and a jacket in a certain time. Older academics would be ashamed to write the way it's now acceptable to write. I wish we had an example of that
0: sort of thing handy. In fact, I can probably find one uh, on the internet during our next uh, pause (laughs) for commercials. But you're talking about the sort of writing that modern... Uh, critical theory types in English Mm -hmm. departments, particularly around the American universities.
1: do This bristling, opaque prose with mile-long sentences, very particular uses of long words, and basically not a whit of concern for the kind of balance and euphony and flintiness of Gibbon's text. That would be considered rather old-fashioned, and more to the point it would be beyond these people because they haven't been trained in that kind of writing.
0: What about the writing that we all consume? Because after all, the stuff that Judith Butler or Homi Baba writes is not widely mm-hmm. read, even right. though it can be mocked by some people in adjoining departments. Homi oh, Baba, What uh, brought him up? <laughs> well, he was a professor at our place at the University of Oh, Chicago. okay, okay. Yeah. And he's now going on to he's his proper Harvard. award. He's going on to Harvard. Yeah. Um, but And both he and Butler won the prize for the most... The bad writing the award. The bad writing award yeah. that was given by those people <laughs> in Australia, wasn't you? That's right. Um, but what about the stuff that we all read every day? Our newspapers, the common magazines, uh, for that matter, the business communications that might re- reach us, uh, either from the dean's office or from the CEO's office or, or yeah, what have
1: you? Simply, simply less flair. And so it's not that we are writing we're we're writing the way we talk, but we are in a situation where people simply do not feel the need to decorate the language in circumstances such as those, because we have a different sense of what it is to speak or to use language in public. This is a review of a theater production from an anonymous reviewer, so this is anybody important, in 1909 in Cincinnati. And this is very ordinary prose for the period. There are some pointers in the way of enthusiasm and conscientious work by which their white confreres in the profession might profit. Attention was called to this same characteristic in these columns last year, but the effect of this aptitude for large choral numbers is equally noticeable this year. That's an elegant kind of prose, almost pretentious to our ear, which you would never, never encounter in, a, in an analogous situation today. That's not how reviews are written. Another quick example. Marion Anderson, the soprano, is being written to by the director of the Associated Negro Press. It's 1931. Ordinary letter. And this is one of the passages from the letter. I hesitate to suggest the expenditure of any sum of money which might seem to you considerable. And yet, if it aids in the securing of larger audiences, it might be considered justified. Nobody would talk that way. But this is the way this person felt, that he had to write a very ordinary letter that really ought to be completely lost to history. This was a different time. So it's not that we're writing the way we speak all that much outside of certain magazines. But it's that now our writing is much grayer. It's less considered. We don't love the language anymore, and if you don't love it, why buy it Clothes.
0: The writers most commonly read on a more or less daily basis are the political columnists.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: one could name they
6: vary. 15 yeah.
0: or 20 of them instantly, Sure. because they're seen in all American newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, which ones strike you as capable of or as employing? some degree of rhetorical fluency, and which ones do not?
1: Paul Krugman is very good at having a very light degree of casualness, but in mm-hmm. general, coming up with a very flinty column that keeps you reading all the way through one time and uses vocabulary in an elegant way. Tom Friedman has his good days. Um, As far as I'm concerned, Maureen Dowd on this is a tragedy. I mean, she would be on the other extreme. Uh, Going to the the other end
0: of the political spectrum, what do you think of Peggy Noonan?
1: Peggy Noonan is very talented. I think Peggy Noonan would have had more to apply her talents to 40, 50, or 60 years ago. But to the extent that we remember nuggets of what, for example, Ronald Reagan said, it was her responsibility. And in her, her her writings, which I've read, she is a good writer. None of these people have the particular tone that, say, uh, Walter Lippmann would have had. We, we, we've changed. And their radio equivalents don't sound like H.V. Kaltenborn. But then they, they couldn't. Who,
0: who, who would the radio equivalents even be?
1: Well you had commentators like Caltenborn who often did his reports from during World War II. And you had who's another standard announcer? Dorothy Thompson, when she would give her reports over the radio.
0: But there are there are none in radio today who uh simply deliver orations or deliver extended comments uh in a non-interview form what you have instead are the talk show hosts in fact you are sitting with one of them right now
1: that's right of course um all things all things considered has the occasional little segment where they'll have somebody give some sort of speech of a kind they'll mm-hmm. have andre cadrescu or they'll have a little anonymous two people. Minute, uh, but no there's uh, no such thing there as the eric severide segment that there that, that used to be on tv news so no that that's definitely i true. think
0: a great social theorist uh, really had his eye on um, the process, even before the process was fully uh, developed or before it had fully unfolded. I speak of Jacques Ellul. Mm. Do you know his writing at all?
1: No, I'm not familiar.
0: French sociologist who was mm-hmm. also a Huguenot um, uh, clergyman. Mm. Um, been gone now for some 10 or is it 20 years? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But did some very important work. Uh, the Technological Society is a major work of his. Another is the one called Propaganda, mm-hmm. in which he argues... What year? Uh, oh, About? a good 20 years ago, okay. it, I think. Uh, but he argues in it that what characterizes large modern mass democracies is that they are intrinsically ungovernable. There's the clash of so many interests in their plural composition, mm-hmm. that they don't really work well unless there is a kind of permissive apathy on the part of the general public. Mm. Then the elite can manipulate uh those half-attentive millions mm-hmm. and kind of keep the show moving and how what, depressing and what produces that permissive apathy is the cacophony of opinion the mm. overload of information and interpretation and constant commentary constant chatter he said that before the cable networks had developed he That's said that before a lot had developed i think it's perfectly accurate interpretation of what's happened in this country now there's right. so much going on so much being said so much of it uh in the form of uh poses you can easily see through mm-hmm. uh but which have their commercial payoff value that's right or have their immediate political payoff value in terms of scoring the point for the day doing the spin of the day
1: for the day right for exactly. the day yeah
0: uh, and the news hounds are following all of this partly with cynicism, partly looking for scandal and looking for that which immediately
1: makes... Will advance their career.
0: Advance their career by giving the paper or the magazine a headline mm-hmm. that, will be, that will startle everybody. Mm-hmm. That um, the continuity of serious discourse about how the world is going mm-hmm. and what problems face us and what is to be done about it becomes more and more difficult to maintain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thus, making, and also generates a kind of permissive apathy from those who are overwhelmed By all of the noise. And so they retreat to the thematic entertainments provided by film, by television, by what have you. Mm -hmm. They retreat to various privatized spheres, and essentially they say, well, those guys are right, those guys
1: are wrong, but they know much more than we do. Let's leave it to them. Suppose it's 1930, if I may ask a question. You've got magazines, you've got the radio, which you would process as blaring, you've got newspapers, and you've got the movies. Are we to assume that that was not considered cacophonous enough? Where does the cacophony stir? If he wrote before there was even cable, presumably he, to a large extent, meant the four, the, the four networks blare. Well, he wrote in France. He wrote right. in Europe. Okay. Well, um, probably too.
0: Uh, and there wasn't, that, there wasn't that much television, but there was right. enough. There's an awful lot of... Uh, of um, print journalism mm-hmm. uh, an awful lot of intellectoid noise as well right in the French uh, and that's pretty Parisian vibrant styles yeah um, uh, but uh, already it was a very noisy world mm-hmm. uh, noisy with opinion noisy with um, with verbal tricks noisy mm-hmm. with
1: um, well that's uh, interesting because with competing voices yeah that... The the onset of that would coincide roughly, I suppose, with what I think of as the dominance of the counterculture. And so we may have factors that work together. And
0: you find a good deal originating in the counterculture and in the events of the 60s. Mm -hmm. We haven't even touched on that aspect of your analysis. We will proceed to do so after we pause for these words. And we return to John McWhorter, who is not only professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley... But also was a resident scholar at the Manhattan Institute, at the other end of the country, as it were, and whose newest book is "Doing Our Own Thing: The Degradation of Language and Music, and Why We Should, Like, Care." I just, I do. I repeat once again, love that touch of the "like" in there. What are you actually doing when you put the "like" in there? What are you well, signaling?
1: The like is to signal that we do have a new sense of language that is not only teen-speak, but I've noticed people who are 50 and past it saying like at this point. Not to mention that that like, as spoken language goes, is actually quite articulate. That like conveys a certain nuance that kind of takes you by the collar in a gentle way. It it, it
0: translates as sort of.
1: Um, Rather like sort of, but... This like, I think, also carries a nuance of indicating that something urgent is going on especially since i mean it with a bit of irony yeah. there is articulateness in spoken language and i try to stress that in the book the book is not about people saying billy and me went to the store it's about what's happening to our formal language namely that i think that it's in danger of eclipse or serious dilution in many quarters the
0: great argument that would be given as a counter to you is language always changes it changes underfoot i've had Uh, permissive linguists on this program on many occasions. Mm -hmm. We do a program titled The Use and Abuse of the English Language. It's sort of a a series. We do it twice a year at least with a regular panel who are awfully good at digging out uh, uh, solacisms which are are chilling or merely amusing. But then there's always somebody who will say, well, so what? The language changes, don't worry about it. And they're right. And you can, all the things that you find as misuses presently were being used back in Shakespeare's time. Always, people true. People will come up with with uh, evidence of that. Right. But you're saying something else. You're saying, yes, it's changing, but it's mm-hmm. really not merely changing. It is uh, it is undergoing degradation, and that's the term you yeah.
1: use. Lang- what do you mean by degradation? What I mean by degradation is that Just as there are wonders of spoken language, which is always changing, and that's how old English became modern English, there is a good thing about the effortful artifice of written kind of language. And so it's not just stuffed shirt language. That is an artifice that can only exist if we have pen and paper. And one of the things that's good about it is that a large vocabulary is only possible to wield for most people if you're writing. Generally speaking, it's been found by linguists that vocabularies are rather small, even among educated people when speaking. It's when writing that you have time to reflect and actually think about the shades of the words you're meaning, uninterested versus disinterested, etc. That's a good thing. Artifice in writing is a good thing in that following a sustained argument is not necessarily the easiest thing for homo sapiens to do when you're talking online sustained argument is something which is best presented and taken in on the page or in an oral statement which is a spoken version of written language and so when we see this formal level of language being marginalized as affected or as something that is imposed upon us by the man, we are losing the benefits of that artifice as well as the occasional knots that one finds it. So back
0: to the sixties, how did the sixties lead us into this kind of degradation?
1: Well the sixties begins with the countercultural movement that arose in part on college campuses. The idea there was students fighting for their free speech, and I think that makes sense to most people. Then this spilled over into protest against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. All of that fine. But a cultural development has a way of developing from urgent response into fashionable tick and so what began as a response to conditions perceived as negative became a kind of a fad. The the essence of all of this became reject authority, trust no one over 30. So various things happened that really didn't have anything to do with anything urgent. The fact that men stopped wearing fedoras and jackets in most situations didn't really help or hurt anything. What that was about was throwing off the ties that bind. And in the same way, language came to be seen as something where you were more authentic to just talk the way you talk and to find what you are inside. And that there's a little bit of the romantic about this, the spontaneity, the nobility of the individual soul, unfettered, etc. And as a result, I don't think anybody actually thought about this at the time. But it was here that suddenly even Newton Minow's speech about the vast wasteland ended up coming off as an old-fashioned speech too buttoned up. And it's here that you start seeing the America that we know now. You also see it in the lyrics to music. And so it was the countercultural impulse which developed into an unconscious fashion, which is the only fashion I've ever known at the age of 38. And here we are today.
0: Orwell makes a point that many others have made before, that if you denude the language, you uh, limit the possibility for thinking about
1: important things. It could be said, and that's not to say that somebody who speaks a strictly oral language cannot think in a sophisticated way, because we should always remember that of the world's languages, there are 6,000 languages. Only about 200 are written in any serious way, so language is fundamentally something oral. However, it's also true, as Walter Ong told us in his magnificent book, Orality and Literacy, Mm -hmm. that when you have writing, there are certain thought processes that become much easier actualized thought processes happen. And so, for example, if you have writing, then here's a situation where an extended argument can be laid out, where so much lore can be collected that history stops being a matter of legend designed to help in present tense society, but it actually becomes a repository of often useless but very interesting information. All sorts of things happen when you can capture language on the page. Young people have been writing for me for
0: over 40 years. That is I am one of those crusty old professors who still decline in quality, who still requires essay production mm-hmm. from his students, right uh, and uh, and I've given testimony again and again, I've carried on again and again on this very radio program, so that regular listeners are tired of hearing this, that I have certainly seen a decline in linguistic proficiency in my own undergraduate. But even, for that matter, in my graduate students, mm-hmm. uh, and a decline to so, uh, to such depth that, in fact, there are many of them, not all, of course, but many of them, not really capable of putting together an ordered, syn- grammatically correct, and syntactically oh, yeah. structured sentence, let alone paragraph, let alone Three or four pages. Of, oh yeah, of serious writing.
1: I've known many undergraduates like that, even in my ten years of teaching. And it's certainly not that they're stupid. It's that they're not being taught something well, that's it. for one thing. That's it. And also, to the extent that we're less and less a print culture, you end up inhaling less and less these sorts of practices just from reading a lot. You know, the truth is that the best, the be- the language meisters among my undergraduates are almost always heavy readers that's where you get it not from someone looking over your shoulder and teaching you how to construct sentences that can help but really you have to have drowned yourself in text from an early age but what's amazing is that say a hundred years ago someone who had only gone through to the eighth grade which was quite common then often was capable of a level of composition which would be beyond many undergraduates today. That One of the was great examples of, of that
0: that we have in American public life, of course, is Abraham Lincoln.
1: Abraham Lincoln, for example, back of the shovel. This is somebody who taught himself a level of eloquence that I think would be beyond most of us. The letters written by many of the soldiers during the Civil War were written in a very structured kind of prose with an extremely written vocabulary. This being to intimates, and often the letters even have little mistakes, which shows that this was actual living human beings writing these elegant little missives wouldn't happen today those letters would be processed as rather off-putting which just shows that those people and they didn't live that long ago were almost anthropologically different from us in the way they related to language so you're suggesting we live now in a post-literate culture we are increasingly a post-literate culture and I think that it's going to continue especially because we have this new invention the cell phone and watching people using these phones, particularly over about the past three years, I found myself thinking, those phones allow you to talk idly in spaces in which, until rather recently, people had to engage with text because there was nothing else to do. But the fact of the matter is that it is natural to humans to talk. We're social animals. Most societies talk all the time when they're small hunter-gatherer bands. Silence is threatening. Now, it used to be that there were various situations in first world societies where you were artificially kept from speaking. Now we've got these phones. So it used to be you'd sit down at the airport, You'd read a magazine because no one was with you and you couldn't talk to anyone. But now we see that if you were allowed to just run your mouth idly, nine out of ten people would rather do that than read. So cell phones alone are going to cut into the space that we once had to fill with engagement with text.
0: They even cut into the space in which ordinarily one would engage in placid voyeurism. Walking (laughs) Mm -hmm. down a crowded street... Uh, one of the best look. things to do is to look at the people and to mm-hmm. think about what you're seeing and mm-hmm. to react. These days, as I go go out on Michigan Avenue, right here, uh, outside this building, and walk two or three blocks to some destination, mm-hmm. uh, a good three 20%, out twenty percent. Well, three out of four are not quite that many, but a, but but a good one out of five mm-hmm. is in fact talking into a cell phone Hmm. as they're walking down this crowded street and bumping into people because they're so unconscious of the others who are really there composing a human scene of which they are supposed to be a part.
1: One of the weirdest things was after the recent blackout in New York City Mm -hmm. where almost all cell phones became useless. You could watch people walking down the street many of them looked a little bit baffled and it wasn't because of the blackout because the light was still bright this was a long uh-huh. summer day they couldn't talk on the phone there were a lot of people oh. who really weren't used to not being able to talk idly all day long we are the slaves of our technologies yes we are uh
0: and to make that point even more clearly it's time to stop for <laughs> some commercials <laughs> and we return to john mcwarter drawing from his new book doing our own thing the degradation of language and music and why we should like care that's published by um, gotham books which is a division an imprint uh... of penguin books and this book is of course a lot of fun as well as
3: a serious treatise Um,
0: what are some of the discoveries you made doing this when you
1: as you were poking around looking for uh, exemplary material one of the things that was interesting was listening to the speakers in the Senate on, um, after the Day of Infamy, oh when God. they made their speeches arguing for going to war against Japan. And I read the transcripts, and it was in this elegant, almost hyper kind of language. And my question actually was, did they actually talk this way? Is this what they entered into the record? They talked that way. So through some connections, I managed to dig up Uh, recording of a radio feed that was made in Congress that day. I was tipped off by an NPR story about that a couple of years ago. And you can actually listen to the speeches being made, and I'll be darned if those guys did not actually stand up there and make Orations that made them sound like Roman senators in favor of going to war against Japan. Every now and then there'd be a little blip which showed that they were human beings, but they did talk that way. So it was interesting to hear and to compare with statements that various congressmen made when we were deciding whether or not to go to Iraq. And the difference between, say, a Senator Charles Eaton of Ohio in 1941 and, say, Senator Sam Brown back now is quite different. They're creatures of different eras. So that was one interesting discovery.
0: Yeah, political think. parlance these days is really really quite flat-footed, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, much more so than it used to be. And so, when you avoid uh, the pur- what would now be called a purple passage. You avoid right. metaphor. And what's interesting is that, of course, there was a ratcheting down, even in the earlier decades of the last century, because electric amplification meant that you no longer had to shout to be heard. If you had to be heard by thousands of people just standing up, at a podium, then naturally there would be a certain volume, there'd be a certain kind of gesticulation. It was an art to public speak in that way, to speak publicly in that way. Once there are microphones, a little bit of the drama is cut. But still, Franklin D. Roosevelt used language in a particular way. John F. Kennedy used language in a particular
3: way. I was about
0: to say, uh, and and, and in fact to pose this question to you, wasn't Kennedy really our last last president who aspired to the something to a
1: derivative of the classical rhetorical style very much so he, him or one might say his speechwriters although uh, he Ted Sorensen did most of that for yeah Sorensen was a genius at this and i think that um he was the last one johnson had a more populist tilt and so oratory just didn't happen to be his bent nixon didn't that's seem... not what you can do for
0: your country what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country is a wonderful contrast to bring home that coonskin on the wall.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's Johnson. Or Nixon, for example, in his I'm speeches, not a crook. He, I am not a crook, or the checker speech is not something anybody would want to take home and hang on their wall. And that's just, he He was beginning to be a creature of a different era. And I don't think we're going to see the likes of that again for a long, long time. Flat-footed would definitely be the word for it. Anything different. Say, for example, in Al Gore, who is a rather hyper-articulate person, can be politically lethal. Part of the reason that he's not in office is because people felt that he was talking down to them, and I don't think that was all his manner. It was partly that he's actually very crisply and cleanly spoken. That helped get Warren G. Harding elected.
0: Now, you are saying that the British still maintain something of such a tradition, so this kind of degradation process Hmm. is not necessarily... Uh, visible in all languages in all societies. At By moment. no
1: means. It's it's an aberration, as a matter of fact. Most people around the world have a certain love of their language. You can watch a Russian student who's here in the United States rattle off strokes of Pushkin, and they get this beautiful smile on their faces. There is no poet that the typical American student rattles off that way, even at an excellent school. That's just not part of our training. Or even indigenous societies often have champagne language, language that they break out on ceremonial occasions and sit and thrill to. Often not educated people who have little contact with the first world love to hear their language in a decorated fashion. Our sense of language, where things just kind of fall out of our mouths, is rather new and rather unusual we are unique in this sense of languages just
0: talking of course i'm an ambassador from another time uh being one of the older
1: guys you remember these times
0: Uh, i do remember some of it from my own childhood but the point i was the point i was about to make is i have uh, large swaths of uh, poetry Mm -hmm. that are in my head which i will sometimes recite to myself. Mm -hmm. When the stuff on the radio in the car isn't terribly interesting, you might turn it off (laughs) and do a
1: Shakespearean soliloquy. It would be interesting to try. Of course, I'd have to be memorizing these things for the first time. Well, you've surely memorized a good deal of poetry in your time, haven't you? Oh, by no means. I was born in 1965. I went to excellent private schools. Never once was I given a poem to memorize, and I think it was just part of the times. I can recite to you not a single poem. And more to the point, I don't think I'm unique. You know, my friends tend to be educated types. We do not read poetry very often. And so the book is not a holier-than-thou book, because I feel myself as part of this culture in many ways. But yeah, there is a Bugs Bunny cartoon called Hiawatha's Rabbit Hunt in 1941. Mm -hmm. It opens with Bugs Bunny reading from the Song of Hiawatha. Now, I grew up watching this and just accepting it, especially since you see the cartoon over and over. But if you think about it, why is he reading poetry? Well, in 1941, that made sense because most people had to read Longfellow and generous swatches of other people in school. That's no longer true. A modern cartoon character would not be depicted reading poetry. That's just not what we do. And that time fascinates me because a time when poetry was valued to that extent, to the extent that at least you had to pretend to like it in school, have your Untermeyer on the shelf, that was a time of a greater sense of language love than we have.
0: An old friend of mine, Francine Duplessis Gray, who's a, quite a serious and fine writer, she's a French-American type, born there, raised here since her childhood, um, did an essay uh, on the last page of the Times Book Review about five or six years ago about just this matter, saying she herself has large patches of poetry in her repertoire, and she uh, delights in trotting it out for herself or for her children, who are now grown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she bemoans the fact that That isn't the case for young people these days.
1: That's 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 what you and I are talking about right now. What somebody my age can recite, and I don't mean this at all facetiously, is passages from Dr. Seuss, which is something Mm -hmm. that was given to us, and theme songs. Um, Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch are our Pushkin, and I mean that straight. Well, but what about
0: the lyrics of of popular music, or rather of the fashionable music that went with being an advanced young person? You probably know Dylan... Uh, to, uh, Bob Dylan uh, lyrics that you could recite he, or even
1: sing. He's a little before my time, and I personally find him irritating. But I, I take I take the point. And yeah, that's a different thing because the kind of pop lyrics that we cherish today, on the one hand, are our poetry where yeah. someone would have enjoyed Edna St. Vincent Millay 70 years ago. People my age cherish whatever popular music lyrics they listen to, but those lyrics are a lot less tightly crafted than Edna St. Vincent Millay yeah, they or are, a Cole
0: Porter lyric. They are also more and more not really degraded, but
1: debased. Well, yes, there's also the cultural tone. But even if these things were squeaky clean, they still channel the spoken language. And so meter and rhyme are much less important than sounding like somebody who you could sit down and have a beer with. And that's a different kind of aesthetic, although there are good things about those lyrics, than what an oldster would have recognized.
0: You've done uh, three or four major books uh, intended for a general popular audience Mm -hmm. and this of course the new one doing our own thing is one of them but you've also done technical work in linguistics that's true Uh, that's been largely focused on what particular set of linguistic problems
1: Well, my work in linguistics is a combination of the study of language change and language contact. So what interests me is that we have 6,000 languages. They share space in a world with 200-odd countries. Obviously, these languages come together. They share words, frankly, to a linguist, or at least most linguists. That's kind of boring. More to the point, they share whole structures. So grammars are mostly bastard. And the different ways that these languages come together can be very interesting. So I started out studying Creole languages like Jamaican Patois, Haitian Creole, Papiamentu. These are hybrids of usually European and usually African languages. The two come together and create a brand new one that has a grammar different than either of the other two. And since then, I've been looking at this whole change process in a more global perspective. I want to know why it is that English is the only language in Europe that doesn't have gender, something that even most linguists don't usually think mm-hmm. about. Every single other language on that continent has the annoying genders that frustrate us when we learn French or Spanish or German. English is the only one that doesn't. There are many linguists that would tell you that's just an accident. I think that it is not an accident. So and the English aren't like all that interested in sex. Yeah, something like that. And then there's also this language culture hypothesis, the hypothesis put forth by Edward Sapir mm-hmm. and his student Benjamin Lee Whorf, that the way your language is channels the way you think. This is something which actually I'm going to address in my next book because although that hypothesis never interested me that much before, I've noticed that there is a great... Romance with this idea among many people that because a Native American has different markings for tense in their language It means that they have a different conception of time. Do you know
0: the great wharf story about the two linguistic students at Columbia?
1: No, I don't it's a big
0: production to do a brief version of it, I will probably wreck it. But one says to the other, you know, I've been reading this guy Wharf. And the other one says, well, yeah, I know he's important, but I never read him. What's it about? Said, ah, it's fascinating. He points out that uh, the language of people really reflects its modalities of emotional experience, and thus ultimately its history. And that shows up particularly in vocabularistic differentiation. What's vocabularistic differentiation? Well, uh, one common example he gives is that uh, the Eskimos have 50 different words for different kinds of snow. Well, so what? What's that got to do with us? And these are both Jewish guys, and they both think that they are pretty good in Yiddish. And the other one says, well, but I was asking myself, how does that apply to Yiddish, for example? We have a tremendous vocabularistic differentiation for states of uh, disappointment, states of, of loss, of tragedy. That's a reflection of our historical experience. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, says the second guy. Let's see, what's the basic word for disappointment in Yiddish? She says, well, the basic uh, word for Yiddish, uh, for disappointment in Yiddish is on, uh, it's uh, it's funny, I can't think of it right now. And toast. The other one says, uh, well, uh, that's because you have such a wide range of possibilities, such a differentiated vocabulary, but the basic word is so-and-so. And he can't think of he They get very stressed about it, and the, uh, the first guy says, "I'll call my grandmother. She doesn't speak a word of English. I got to do this in Yiddish, translating myself as I go." He calls his grandmother, and he says, uh, "Baba, das is Myron. sehr schön Myron, was du How are you, Myron? Uh, I want to ask you something. What is? What is it?" Says the grandmother, uh, is the uh, uh, gebet for." Uh, for uh, kommen zu essen freitig bei imagine that you invited me to come to dinner friday night zay very nice says the grandmother yet zel zakan aso tashinum khalga bacht now imagine you baked a very nice khale aus gefilter fish gemacht you made your fish was alles ausgekraut you prepared everything abada of course says the baba oba yet zel zakan des freitig bei nacht 6er now imagine friday night at 6 o'clock ich I call up and I say, "I'm sorry, but I can't come." Oi, says the grandmother. "Although but but I want to know, is how would you feel?" There's a long pause, and she says, "Meiren, ich will dir sagen der I will tell you the truth. Ich will der Ich
3: disappointed."
1: See, that's exactly the sort of thing that would happen in real life. Languages mix. Of course. It's funny how many papers people write about things like what's being depicted as very ordinary, yeah. although cute in that joke. But, um, yeah, there's there are a lot of conceptions out there about language that really are not what linguists believe or that linguists shouldn't believe you know one of them is the blackboard grammar rules that i often get scolded about like billy and me went to the store and one of them is the idea that um eskimos language channels the way they think you know eskimos happen to have more words for to know than we do that doesn't mean that the eskimos are more knowing than we are it just means that their language has a chance wrinkle that ours doesn't
0: you you quite consciously choose to violate the pronounal
1: Rule about singular and plural pronouns. That's a perfect example. I'm trying to avoid the his or her. Singular, singular there, and a lot of people are very offended by that. But there are two things about it. One is that it goes back to the Middle Ages. More to the point, if you look at a great many languages around the world, pronouns have shifted all over the place. It makes sense within the present tense to say, no, there must be plural. But then, if you look at how pronouns shift around elsewhere, le in Italian, as a matter of fact, is something that refers both to a woman and then is also a formal version of you that you can use for a man or a woman. That doesn't make sense. It just kind of happened. And so in the same way, English's pronouns are shifting around, too, but many people process it as an offense. Well, a
0: radio host has their obligations, <laughs> uh, namely to stop for commercials. We do that, but first it's time to invite telephone calls. We're opening the lines right now, the number 591-7200, 591-7200. The area code 312 if you're calling long distance. Anything that this conversation stirs in you by way of question or comment or example or memory, we'd love to hear from you. 591 7200. And if you're listening on the internet at some greater distance and would rather reach us via email, the email address extension 720, as one word, extension 720, at tribune, T R I B U N E dot com. We'd love to hear from some of our listeners in Australia right now, uh, since we're talking about the uh, language and the way it varies, the way it differs. Uh, It varies, of course, not only in uh, pronunciation, like Australia rather than Australia, but it varies as well in the meaning of words and even in uh, dominant constructions which aren't really fully comprehended elsewhere in the world. So. For any or all of those matters, if you want to get uh, into the conversation, join us. At the moment, I see all of our lines are taken. And if you can't get through when you call, then, of course, you should be trying again in a minute or two, or after we say goodnight, to some prior caller. We'll be directly on to your contributions after these words. And we will go directly to the phones for your questions and or comments to John McWhorter, uh, whose new book, Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language and Music and Why We Should Like Care, has just recently been published and is available wherever they sell real books including on our own website if you go to wgnradio.com click on my name and then go to the website for extension 720 if you then uh, scroll down on our program guide scroll down to the night of october 21st you'll see a picture of the cover of this book if you click on that you'll be in the hands of barnes and noble who will sell the thing to you at uh, probably a 15 discount Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. You are on the air. Good evening,
6: Milt. Riveting stuff, as, you, uh, as the English might say, ripping good stuff. Thank you, sir. Uh, as an American might say, it's awesome. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that one thing that you touched on, but you surprisingly, I don't think you went to a deeper issue here. You were talking about cell phones earlier, but I think the deeper issue is uh, the American culture's uh, obsession with expediency. Uh, and I think that we are we're sacrificing. Uh, lyricism and profundity at the altar of uh, speed and expediency we get news nuggets on the web. Uh, you know uh, they, they, they discuss all the time sound bites uh, on, on the news uh, 25 years ago 30 years ago it was not uncommon maybe to hear the president uh, hear a minute minute and a half excerpt from a speech. now it's 10 15 seconds sound bites from candidates. Uh, please comment I, I, I can't help but think that this isn't contributing heavily to uh, our lower level of uh, discourse,
1: yeah, it probably does, given the fact that it's so much rarer to hear people making extended statements or even expecting to be able to, given how quick these things are. I just did an interview this morning that was exactly two and a half minutes long, and that was actually considered something substantial and so if you're you know out with a book like me, you learn to translate mm-hmm. your thoughts into sound bites and make them as articulate as you possibly can, yeah we are not listening to language used in an extended way. We're hearing it chopped up into pieces.
6: Uh, earlier you used the word solecism, and I had to go to the web and, and look it up again on, on Webster's. And, and I think that uh, when you're in a hurry, uh, you know, looking to communicate ideas rapidly as you often are on cell phones, because obviously you've got a limited amount of minutes and you don't want to give it charge for roaming and all this sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to come up with just the right precise word. And so... Uh, once again, I think, uh, you know, precision is sacrificed, and to some degree, lyricism is sacrificed. I've made my point, then. Uh, I would agree. Yeah. Thank you.
0: We well, thank you, sir. Very glad to have heard from you. And quickly to another on 591-7200. Hello, you're on the air.
7: Yes, hello. Good evening. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, I wanted to say that I'm distressed by something I've noticed recently in conversation and a lot on the radio, and that is that people will... Uh, will use um, that instead of who when talking about people. Uh, I heard a man that told that story instead of I heard a man who. And I've noticed it a lot, very frequently. Um, people are now that's and not whose, And I find that distressing.
1: Well, um, I can only give an honest answer, which is there are many languages in the world where the word for who and the word for that in that situation are exactly the same. And then on the other hand, there are many languages in the world where, whereas we have the who and the that, they have six or seven different words that are just cutting up the semantics there into different ways. And so I'm not being flippant when I say that, to me, the fact that we have a who and a that is just the way this language happened to come out at a certain time. And if we're moving towards having that cover more ground, it's just that kind of thing, if I may, that created modern English out of old English. Old English became modern English because of a long series of mistakes. That's the way a linguist feels about these things, although I'm aware that that's not the way the general
7: public tends to feel. And if I could just add that there might be a generational thing going on here, too, because um, I went to college in the 60s, Mm -hmm. and I don't remember that. At all. It's people who. The man who, the woman who.
8: Oh, yeah.
1: Things, things creep in. Yep. And,
7: I, and I think, you know, it is creep, and it's uh, objectification, and I really think that there's maybe more to it uh, mm. at a psychological level, a numbing or a distancing or an objectification.
9: Mm-hmm. So
7: uh, I have just noticed this more and more frequently. It's hard to find a who uh, these days, and it didn't used to be that way twenty
1: and thirty years ago yeah there are definitely changes that come in they tend to sound there are all sorts of interpretations that you can make for example one that bothers me although i know that it's just the language that's changing is when somebody should be saying as far as i'm concerned you can't just walk in there like that and they say you just can't walk in there like that the just can't doesn't make sense to me it should be in the other order But people aren't going to stop saying that and it's things like that that end up basically keeping the language changing and it's not that there's something so romantic about the change more to the point no language has ever not changed and the changes always look a little off-putting and can be interpreted in many ways in the present tense the next thing you know you've got a new language and that's the only way that they arise ma'am thank you for the call okay good to have
0: heard from you and we will Pause and catch up with the commercials. And then directly back to the phones, and some interesting email has been accumulating as well. The phone number, five nine one seven two double zero. For email, extension720 at tribune.com. And quickly, back to John McWhorter and back to your calls to him. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air.
8: Good evening. Um, I just would like to hear uh, both of your comments regarding the uh, blurring that appears to be happening between reporting and editorializing. Uh, It just seems to be happening increasingly, and it's really difficult to get a straight news report anymore. In fact, I I understand that reporters are now being encouraged to not report just the news, but to color it with their own opinions, and I find this very distressing. I, I have to hunt all over the airways to get a really good report. Of the news, rather than uh, than somebody's opinion of it, and it's done in very sometimes it's done in very subtle ways. The, the words that are selected, and the the way that the news is presented, uh, certainly indicates some sort of bias. Uh, but that's one thing I'd like you to comment um, about. And the other one is that when some important issues come up and the media is discussing them, uh, our media are discussing them. Pardon my my slip there. Um, one. <laughs> yeah. one. Um, but they they seem to consult other media people rather than look to uh, experts who may know more about the situation. And so we have a you know an analysis of an analysis of an analysis or an opinion of an opinion of an opinion. I take the answer off the air.
1: i would I would venture that I'm not sure if the past was all that much different. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about today, but I would have a hard time saying that the press, either the broadcast or the print press in the 40s and 50s, was less biased than the one today. If anything, my sense is that the general concern about media bias has become so much a part of how we think about these things, and there's so much vigilance on the part of the public that I think there are, more attempts at this sort of thing than there used to be. For example, and Milt, you can can comment on this too, I think the New York Times, which is often accused of being a leftist rag, um, and it's a rag that I read every day and will continue to until I die, has become more centrist over about the past few years. I get the feeling somebody at the Times has become sensitive to that criticism, and they're trying to be somewhat more representative. Articles appear there Hmm. these days that I would hardly believe I would have seen in that paper, six or seven years ago it seems to me that sometimes we might tend to idealize the past somewhat but then again we're also talking about a past i wasn't in
0: well i i do see the times as uh, as tilted leftwards oh it's Uh, still tilted leftwards and i don't know that they've uh, abandoned uh that particular tilt but of course recently they've hired themselves a second commercial uh, conservative, conservative column yeah, David Brooks That's yeah, right, which means yeah. that they want to that's somehow that's the sort of thing I mean. the balance yeah um, we'll go to another caller 59172 double zero I see now I was about to say one line available but no it's just been taken uh, but here is the next caller hello you're on the air
2: yes good evening um, I'd just like to point out that Hungarian is a european language although not an indo-european language that has actually less use of gender than uh english since it doesn't even have the he she it distinction and then some of the scandinavian languages have just you know common versus neuter which is semi-gender but actually i was wondering more what were you reading into what was the import for you of this uh, use or
3: non-use of gender uh, europe versus the world
1: well, it has no, it's not about the world and it's not about culture. I think that English is a language that at one point in its history, specifically um, after the Viking invasions, was learned so often as a second language that it was somewhat simplified in the process. And that's happened to a lot of languages around the world. I think it happened to Swahili, it happened to Mandarin, Chinese. And that left English rather uniquely streamlined in comparison to all the languages closely related to it.
0: Uh, Here is an interesting email along those lines. Let me thank that caller and read this email to you. I tuned in with interest just about the time your guest said that of all the European languages, English is the only one that does not assign gender to nouns. Hungarian goes one beyond English in not assigning gender. Hungarian not only gives no gender to nouns, it has gender-neuter pronouns. Nonetheless, the Magyar language manages to reflect many European cultural constants. Granted, it's not in the Indo-European family of languages, but rather uh, is in the small Finno-Ugaric language family. Still, Hungary is in Europe, last time I checked. Uh, And this uh, listener indicates that she was born in Budapest.
1: Yeah, well, she would know. I was speaking too fast there. Actually, I meant the Indo-European languages of Europe. Certainly, Hungary is one of those languages. However, what's interesting also is that, as I'm sure the person who wrote that knows, Hungarian grammar is hugely complicated in a way that English often is not, but definitely point taken.
0: And back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, are you there? Yes, I
2: was... My question is, um, about 40 years ago, Neil Postman came out with a, a criticism of the television age. and um, That would be that
0: up, a, Amusing Ourselves to Death, I believe, is the book He you followed
2: mean. that up about 10 years ago with the Technopoly about how the modern age is deadening the um, human instinct for learning. And, um, and I wanted to hear the comment, but I also had one other comment. Diane Ravitch came out with this book recently about the language police, about the educational system being censored, and that has to have some um, um, uh, difficulties with learning or the children um, uh, having any kind of interest if there's no subject matter to learn from.
0: Well, the plague of political correctness has done great damage to American education. The language policing is just one of those.
1: Yeah, I think that the education issue is important but it's it's a symptom because what we want to ask is why education became the way it did at a particular point in time and given the fact that we see these changes accelerate in the 1960s and given that certainly there was a major cultural sea change in the 1960s it's, it's pretty tempting to draw some sort of causal link you can look at textbooks for sixth graders through the century and you see them pitched at a level we think of as almost unthinkably high at the turn of the century and then things are going down as early as the 1950s, but by the 1970s, you've got language being thrown at sixth graders, which is practically hop-on-pop, and the reason that that has happened is because a barrier came down, just like the bad writing academics do what they do, because there's no longer any stricture in society against doing so. I think that Other prerogatives came in with education, such as the diversity fetish and various other things and and basically waylaid the concern with teaching students the higher forms of grammar, because those things were distrusted. And that feeling was especially prevalent in the educational establishment after certain developments in that culture in the late 1960s. Uh, the caller mentions Neil Postman. Do you know that work? I have not read Neil Postman's yeah. book, no. Uh, he, he died only last week yeah, the in, bit in the paper. Uh, yeah.
0: I knew him some, and uh, in fact, uh, Found his analysis of what change in communication technology has done to total society always to the point. Used one of his books as a, uh, as a text, I think. And of course, I did some years ago. Uh, we go back to the phones, and here is the next hello. You're on the air.
2: Good evening, Dr. Belton John. I just want to know if your uh, special guest has heard of uh, Dillywick, if Defense Line, we didn't West Coast.
1: I didn't understand a word you just said. Okay,
2: I'm just, I was kind of startled there. Defense Language Institute West Coast. It's the military uh, school out uh-huh. in Monterey, California. Uh-huh. I'm a military-trained linguist in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was out there, they told us, don't ask why when they told us a, a new language, and they also told us that for a foreigner, English is the hardest language for a foreigner to learn. Is that, do you think that's true?
1: No, I don't. don't? Really, all languages are hard to learn after a point because every language divides up semantic space in particular ways. Every language has its complications but no english is not as easy as it seems when you at first notice that it doesn't have gender and doesn't have a whole lot of pesky endings and so it surprises most people that once you've got the basics all of a sudden you're still tripping over your tongue all over the place but the thing is that's true of any other language the other languages however right at the beginning throw you with all the needless complications that a language develops over time so no english is is, is not Harder. I would definitely say that Russian is harder than English. And okay. anybody who really thinks English is harder hasn't tried. Russia. How was your How was your Portuguese, sir?
2: Well, it's it's fine. Uh, although we were trained more to uh, receive than speak. Okay, I mm-hmm. was an intercept operator. You so de-
0: we, you decode rather than input. there you go.
2: Yeah, I was yeah. in military intelligence.
1: You decode messages on. from the Portuguese. Yes. Who what are they major players in, in the in the sorts of things that we need to intercept.
2: Well, I can give you a sh- little short blurb here, and I will want to tie you up because I know we got other people want to call. But during the uh, missile crisis in Cuba, mm-hmm. in the intelligence, mm-hmm. we didn't have people with intelligence background that had the language background, and we had people in the language background that didn't have the intelligence background. So the DOD went and went to all four services and says, "You will train everybody." in all the languages in the world. Now, I ended, Every up one Viet- of them, huh? I ended up in Vietnam, but I was a Portuguese linguist, so, you know, go figure.
3: But Thank I you had very a, much.
1: I,
2: I was also a cryptographer, and that's what I did. That's a but neat if, But if Portugal ever attacked us, I was ready. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're, we're ready to put national defense in your hands when, when the missiles fly over from Lisbon. From Lisbon, that. that's right. But, but until then... Did, did you ever encounter General Vernon Walters? Who was, Do you know of him?
1: Who was he again?
0: Well, he ranked very high. At one point, I think he was second in command of uh, the CIA, or maybe third in command. Mm-hmm. And he also had diplomatic missions and so on. He was one of those people who has acquired some 10 or 12 languages mm-hmm. and was very good at it. Mm-hmm. And one of them, um, and he played a, an important role in uh, Cold War things uh, in the 60s and so on. Uh, he did a wonderful memoir, I had met him once when he uh, was promoting that book, mm-hmm. but he uh, uh, was fondest of all of the languages that he had of Portuguese, hmm. which he thought somehow had the nicest feel to it. Really?
1: That's well, interesting.
0: Apart from English, what language do you enjoy most?
1: Um, I enjoy a lot of them, but I think my pet language is Russian. I like the way it sounds. Have you been studying it? Yeah, I, I read it very well, I speak mm. it very badly, but I took some Berlitz lessons in it this year. and. Like I like how hard it is. It's like a Mount Everest. I'm not mm-hmm. athletic, but I can try to teach myself a hard language. I like literature, I like the people. So I would say that's that's my favorite.
0: By the this way, point. this is just a self-indulgence for just a moment before we pause for some commercials and then back to the phones and the email. I fool around sometimes in the office with radio from elsewhere over the Internet. Mm-hmm. And the other day I just popped into the, a station from Aruba, down there on the north coast. Papiamento probably. Well, that's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. It sounded like Spanish, but I couldn't Papiamento. I couldn't understand right. it. What is Papiamento?
1: Papiamentu is a creole language which is you can think of it as a mixture of Spanish and Portuguese with a Dutch overlay ah. with a structure that is lightly influenced by West African languages. Good heavens. So when you hear it, you there's hear a lot Spanish there. that you don't understand. But actually, it's just this incredible, marvelous train wreck between languages that came out as a language of its own. It's one of the few Creoles where newspapers are written in it, there's a literature. Yeah. So you honed in on a language that is, as far as we know, only about 300 years old, Papiamento.
0: Well, how truly interesting. Uh, I sometimes go to Haiti on the radio, mm-hmm. and, of course, uh, I know that Haitian French is not... A Parisian French, mm-hmm. uh, just as Montreal French is not quite Parisian That's right. French. I can understand, uh, my, my French is fairly adequate, and I can mm-hmm. understand radio from Montreal. I can't understand radio from Haiti.
1: It's one of the oddest experiences because you're listening to these words, you, you get the words, but darned if you know what they're saying. Exactly. My first experience with Creole languages was just, it was at the end of college, and I heard some guys speaking what I now know was Jamaican patois, and I, they, were, they were speaking English, but I couldn't understand anything they were saying. It wasn't just the accent. Something was going on. And I finally had to ask them, what What are you doing? And they said, we're speaking Jamaican. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I went and looked it up. And I realized that was a mixture of English and African. And uh-huh. that's why I couldn't get it. And after that, I decided, what? You know, clearly that must have happened more than once. I want to know about these languages, and that was the beginning of a career.
0: Language, in fact, is wonderful fun, isn't it?
1: It really is. Yeah. I mean, we all speak, of course. For me, just the fact that there's so many people who speak so many different ones, and the fact that these languages have things in common, that they don't have things in common, that there are systematic processes that you can see amidst the chaos, the sheer magic of the fact that what we're speaking now used to be something that sounded a lot like a kind of cross between Icelandic and German and that we couldn't understand, and that this happened gradually. It's a big playpen, really. Well,
0: what we now speak, in some ways, has changed for the worse in terms of sheer sound value. I think of Middle English, the Chaucerian English. Mm-hmm. One that April with the sorta, mm-hmm. the drochth the Mersheth persed to the Rata, <laughs> and bothered every man in switch liqueur, of which virtue engender it is the floor. Doesn't that sound nicer?
1: You know, it, w- yes, it does. I think that's the one piece of verse, if you will, that I ever had to memorize, because I remember at the beginning of college, you I had to know it, that, yeah. yeah. That is pretty, although I think, with all due respect, I think that slight Scandinavian lilt that we tend to say mm-hmm. it in is based more on the predominance of ooze and a sense of these people as exotic than anything that we know for sure. It could have actually had a very flat sound to us, but Yes. In a subjective way, it's prettier than this kind of language we speak where Germans imitate us by going banana, banana, banana. And the sad thing is that they're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> At least when it comes to Chicago speech, where the and Midwestern speech, where that A is flattened in that Flat way. A, you yeah. say Bana, banana and banana.
1: Or another one they do is white sausage, white sausage. And that does sound like an American. That is, that is how we <laughs> talk. They probably wouldn't have imitated Shakespeare that way.
0: Uh, we pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back. And we will go quickly back to the phones. And here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air.
9: Uh, yeah, actually, I I tried calling about 9:30 after you had played the um, clip of Winston Churchill. Yeah. And uh, you were you were saying why mm-hmm. speeches do not have effect like they used to have, and then you you posed a question to your guest, and then right away you went into a commercial about Disney, Uh, that is exactly the reason why people do not respond to effective speeches nowadays. What does
0: it have to do with Disney? Explain.
9: Because people live in kind of a fairyland now. They've been so wrapped up with entertainment, and they live, people live in in a in a Disney- Disneyland effect. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, like it's, not, it's not a real world. They think that... Yeah, that well, you're that, talking
0: about more than Disney. You're talking in general about our overload of uh, narrative entertainments. Exactly and, uh, what would you
9: say
1: of people who were in love with going to the pictures in 1935? That was a fantasy, right? It is, it really, a fantasy. Is, it, is it really so new, what you're talking about? Is there more of it now, do you think?
9: I think it's more, everybody lives, like, look at the, what is more popular now. It's all um, like the Osbournes, you know, like virtual reality. You know, everybody wants to see reality, and, and it's like, it's, is it really real? It's, it's not even real, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and so now that kind of speech does not live up to what it was, then as you know what what it, it, it's totally different now
1: it's a thought although you know these days i'm coming more and more to think that an awful lot of human behavior is determined by a kind of theatricality and that we tend to exist in many layers even if the tv is not on and we're not wearing Mickey ears but I see where you're coming from
0: Um, along those lines here's an interesting email written in sort of telegraphic phrases rather than in full sentences but I'll give it just as I read it we also have opportunities uh, to become more skillful in our use of language Tony Blair has given us some fine examples during the lead-up to the Iraq um, enforcement of the United Nations resolution put off He means I am put off. Put off by the traditional presentation of liberal arts. Thus, we are less prepared to enjoy pleasing use of language. But education is changing. The misuse of language likely to disappear with increased use of liberal
1: arts. Hmm. I, um... (laughs) You follow that one? There's there's some articles missing. Pretty much so. But I think that, um... Yes, the, the educational establishment is not passing on language at the level that it used to. But I, I hate to be a pessimist, but I don't think that shaking our fists at the schools is going to help here because the schools are part of a larger culture of permissiveness and seeking our inner muse. And I that's you, not going to go anywhere.
0: I'll tell you so. something that might help, and in fact we're going to be talking about it on Thursday on this program. Uh, we're going to be talking about the great books with representatives of two colleges who essentially uh do their first year or two of college training uh you w- w- simply utilizing the great books. They are Shimer College and Wright College, uh one of the city colleges here in Chicago. Two members of each of those faculties, those four and all, will join us. We'll talk about uh the great books, how they and how they are used in education and what interesting uh, what uh, Uh, older people can derive from them if they simply sit down and really read Plato and Montesquieu, and possibly
1: Dostoevsky. I've got a set of great books myself. That's right, my father bought them for me when I was a kid. Have you read all of them? I have read many of them, but I refer to them. I was using the Shakespeare one writing a lecture the other day, as a matter of fact. I should say that uh, tomorrow night we
0: will be doing, though it's a full two-hour program, we'll have tapes from the vault, so to speak, though I will be here to introduce them. Uh, and the first of them is with uh, Judge Robert Bork, or Robert Bork, former judge, almost Supreme Court justice, who's done a new book about the tyranny of the American and other Supreme courts. We did that as a discussion with uh, Robert Bork just about a week ago. We'll play it for you tomorrow night and other things to follow tomorrow night. For now, it is time once again to tell you the title of John McWhorter's new book, It is Doing Our Own Thing: The Degradation of language and music and why we should like care. Gotham Books are the publishers. Uh, on um, Friday night, since I've been talking about things to come, we will do a regular news review with Dan Dresner, Karen Alter, and our good friend Dick Siccone. Monday night, we talk with Michael Wood, who is a British Shakespearean scholar and who has done a major BBC documentary on Shakespeare shortly to appear in this country. All of that to follow, Right now, it's time to get out of the way with thanks to our guests. Thanks to all for listening and a cordial good night.